loneliness is just love with nowhere to go. You don't feel lonely in the places and the things that you're apathetic about, right? Usually when loneliness hits, it's because you feel like you have something to give or you want to have a shared experience. It's that love there and there's nowhere for it to go. Welcome to Let It Out, this podcast you're listening to. My name is Katie Dalebout. This week, I spoke to another Katie, Katie Horwich, my really good friend of nearly a decade. And we talk a bit about our long-term friendship at the beginning of this episode. She is incredible and she's now an author. She wrote this book that just came out and I highly suggest you get yourself a hard copy because we talk about it a bit in this, but she's been helping people shift their negative thought patterns and their negative self-talk for years. And we get into how she wrote the book. We discussed the process of writing it a little bit and some of the content. Katie has this background in theater, but ever since I've known her, she has been pretty prolific in helping people to be better at being themselves, which is really what this is all about. This show, this time we have on planet earth you know and in this we we get into some of the tools that she uses to help people that are in the book and funnily enough i've gotten to just hear her talk about them in general conversation over the years and didn't even know that some of them made it into the book like there's this exercise that she calls a planned freak out that her and her husband would do at a bar in new york and I brought it up and didn't even know it's in the book, but it's an exercise in the book. We go over that. We also talk about energy management and maintaining your social battery and being discerning with plans and much more. Here is my episode with Katie Horwich. I'm so glad you're here. There's one photo of us from the days of our dinner club that was you and me sitting on the same side of the table and Talia and Phoebe are on the other side of the table. You know the photo I'm talking about? And I'm mm-hmm. like hugging, I, my face is not in it. I'm hugging you and I'm like in, I'm like inside of your like head, your hair. Yeah. And it's just the back of my head. We are laughing about something probably crouton related, but uh-huh. I just remember that day so well. I remember that dinner so well. I mean, I remember so so much of that time. And I mean, it, it, I know kind of why that group was so Im- important to, to me and to all of mm-hmm. us. I have an idea about it, which is wh- where I wanted to start anyway. I'm so glad you pressed record. Oh, I didn't even great. realize that, that you did. But it's funny. I brought up that photo because we were trying to take a photo before this. And I was like, well, I know we have some together. I'm sure we do over the years, several. I know we do mm-hmm. from, we both spoke at this good fast conference. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was like this, a wellness conference festival. Yeah. Festival. Yeah. For several years. And we've done so many things like that, that we, there's probably a professional photo of us taken at some point, but that one sticks out in my mind. But I was thinking before we started recording and just for the last couple of days, because I'm so happy to have you here. And it's honestly shocking <laughs> that you have not done the podcast before, 
because I've known you for about a decade. Can you believe that? I cannot believe it. And I am so honored to be on the podcast. And I mean, you know, I'm such a fan of you as a human, you as a creative, you as a podcaster, you as everything. And I will say that photo that you're talking about, we actually have a photo series because I think that either Phoebe or Talia who took the picture just kept taking the picture. So I've got like basically a flip book of us just <laughs> exactly of us just laughing and hugging and smiling. Um, and it was when your hair was really long and beautiful and wavy and it kind of meshes into my hair and we just create one being. Mop. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's, I'm just so happy to talk, get to talk to my friend and to get to record it to have for all of time and for other people to eavesdrop on it. But honestly, you are someone who inspires me so much and is so kind and articulate and talented. And, you know, having this long term relationship with you and this long term friendship, it's really hard to distill down everything that I want to talk about in this. And and like I was saying, I, I'm honestly shocked that you haven't done the podcast before because we have recorded things together before. I, you were so kind to me when when my book came out and you've had me on your podcast. So I know we were, I remember recording that. I don't remember what we talked about. It was so long ago. <laughs> I have no idea. I think that we that was actually one of the first conversations. So I think that was probably 2016. I believe it was right before you moved to New York because remember you came to New York and you hadn't moved here yet. And that was, I think the first time coming often. Yeah. Yeah. At the Um, butcher's daughter. At the butcher's daughter in, I believe Nolita or East village. But I remember having you on and I remember that was still when both of us were, I mean, thinking back on 2015 and 2016, it was just such a different time in general in in life. Um, I feel like so many of us have lived so many lifetimes since then. But I think that the thing that I remember about having you on the pod was it was one of the first conversations that I had on my podcast where I felt like we were able to really talk about not just our frustrations with this wellness industry using air quotes that we had been a part of for so long, but talking about what exactly didn't sit right with us and how we saw things could be done better. Um, and so I rem- I don't remember the details of the rest of the conversation, but I do remember talking about that subject. And I remember how meaningful it was to me because it was a conversation that I knew we could have in a deep, nuanced way because we both thought of it in the same type of way. Um, and it was also not really a conversation that was being had that way out in the world yet, talking about, you know, accessibility and how you can't just love and light things away and manifest your dream life all of the time. And, you know, talking about how exclusive things were and how we could really change things. And I just remember that conversation was when I was like, oh, Katie and I are we're going to be like friend friends, not just friendly friends where we know each other and maybe we do things and our paths cross in certain times, but like we're getting into it. This is someone who no matter where our lives take us and no matter how long it is between when we talk, like this is someone who's going to be in my life for a very long time. 
Oh man. Wow. I, now it's, now I'm, it's so funny how memory works. I think the older that we get, we just have more (laughs) memories, you know, and Mm -hmm. there's more distance between them. But it's interesting because how, like having a photo of something, I'll be wow, I didn't remember that, but now I do. And same thing with you telling me something like that left my brain. But now that you say it, that's coming back and more details around that time are being colored in. And one of the things I remember, like a foundational thing of our friendship of I now I, that you say it, I do remember recording that episode because I was going back and forth to New York a bunch, like a couple times a month and wanting to move there. And I think you had recently moved mm-hmm. somewhat and you were so helpful in helping me believe that I could do it. Like I was so overwhelmed by the the idea of moving to New York City, which is the thing I wanted more than anything in the world. And it was such a tricky, interesting time for me. Like my book had just come out. I had just started dating this person. And I think that's the other thing that like kind of leads to the dinner group that we had. And we... I remember like telling you, oh yeah, I, I went on this date and I start and I was really excited about that. And I remember talking to you about every step of that process and we became closer. And then many years later, two previous podcast guests of of this show and good friends of of ours, Talia and Phoebe, and and you and I, many years later, well, it was 2019, we started this, we just had dinner often. And mm-hmm. then it was a monthly thing. And I remember maybe it started in 2018 because mm-hmm. we, I said this in a, and and why I keep thinking that you've done the podcast before is because I've been on yours and then you were a guest in my how to podcast workshop, let a podcast out. Right. Mm-hmm. I think you were a guest in that. Yeah, I think I did that. Yeah. And so we recorded for that. And then we came over, Talia, Phoebe, and I came over to Katie's house, Katie's apartment in New York, right before I left New York City unknowingly and recorded a conversation about breakups, the the four of us that never got recorded. The first like 20 minutes exists, which I'll try to find somewhere. But the reason I wanted to have that conversation, the four of us, is because something happened. We had been going to dinner every every so often, I think it was every month, maybe at the mm-hmm. previous year in 2018. And then we had like our next months, like we're going to dinner. And I remember we were going to this pizza place called Devil Zero. And it was happened to be right by my apartment. Like I had no reason to not go, but I hadn't done a thing since my boyfriend and I broke up and my grandfather died and I was <laughs> a raw nerve. I was yes. so... Do you remember this? I forgot that that was our first, we called, uh, we called our group plants in the city, like sex yep. in the city, but we went to restaurants where we ate lots of plants. So uh-huh. ipso facto, we were plants in the city. Um, I forgot that that was our first place. And I feel like that first dinner was just, yeah, you were raw nerve, but also so were we all in our own ways. And so right. we were able to just meet ourselves there as we were. And I remember having this really like deep and robust conversation about relationships and about the meaning that different men have had in our lives and the way that we carry that with us throughout our lives. Um, And that kind of kicked off, yeah, the next 
two or three years, I guess, of just didn't basically before the pandemic hit. Exactly. And I think, yeah, I think we had been doing it before we'd maybe done one or two, but I remember thinking like, I'm not going to go like, I'm not, I'm, I hadn't like gone out in public that sad, but I was like, all right, I'm just going to, I, I have, all I can do is just, sh- I can either not go or show up like this. Like there's no third option. Mm-hmm. And I remember it so well of just crying and like I couldn't stop and you all I think because I came in with that like this is where I'm at today ever after that we all were able to like just come in with that and it made me feel so much closer to all of you you were all so kind to me and I think because I had known all of you for a while like all of you had met this person all of you had heard from the very beginning, especially you, like the trajectory of the whole thing that it, and I don't think I had told you what happened yet. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think I had like told you until I got there. And, um, it just, it, it made for this connection between all of us. That was so wonderful. And then I went on this long trip that never ended and, and you, we kept kind of trying to do the, we tried to do it during the pandemic and uh, we did a couple on zoom and it was just sort of hard and it wasn't, it made me sad a little bit, but we, we tried, we did a couple. I would like make an English muffin because it would be like early. It'd be like noon for me here or something. Yeah. We would do like a happy hour time here where it was like early enough that, because we also would do these dinners at like 545. So it would be around our typical dinner time or close to our dinner time here in New York. And then it was like afternoon time for you, or we tried to do some lunches. But I think that that's, I think that's a period of time that I'm so grateful for that we were, I mean, not grateful for a lot of things, but grateful that we kind of had to figure things out and we were forced to figure things out. And, um, we were forced to figure out our relationships as well. And I think it was that period in time where me personally, that's when I started. I know that you're a huge fan of this, but that's when I started using the voice texting uh, functionality yeah. on your phone because um, I had never used that before. And I'm such an in-person person that I think that having that not even be an option For me personally, I think it really forced me out of my comfort zone when it came to my relationships with other people and also made it so clear why certain things like our monthly dinners, why they were so magical and so special. And I think that it became okay to honor that. And it became okay to say, okay, let's not try and replicate this and make this sort of like the B minus version of yeah. what we used to do. Um, I think that, cause that, like you said, it just kind of made it sad. Um, I think that it really just infused so much more meaning into so many things, um, you know, on a micro level and a macro level. One hundred percent, and and now that you say that with the voice texting, that's it. Keep I keep getting these more more memories coming to me because that was another thing. We the group chat was very robust too. After the dinners, we would continue, and we were just kind of always on it. And I was here, and we were all warming up to the idea of like, is this going to be something? What's it was that week, and I remember. I didn't really know where to turn and you all were kind of texting in the chain and I'm in LA and I remember it was raining and I remember just like 
spamming that group with with like 40 minutes of I don't know what I should I stay here I, I don't know what to do I have a suitcase like I'm in the rain like and I remember Phoebe getting on and responding to me like that was 40 minutes of <laughs> you responded and then Talia responded and she had then had to listen but um that's the thing I think about you know relationships that sort of start as even like a work thing or start as like somebody connected us and then that's when you become close when like somebody shows up and they're how they are that day. And then from there you do that every time because you don't have to put on a mask and pretend like everything's okay or sort of have this professional um, cadence about things, but you can just relax because there's this history. And I, I think the pandemic sort of got people into that even quicker because we would show up to these calls and podcast recordings at that time. And I was thinking about this recently and remember how ever the first thing everyone would sort of say is like, how are you doing right now? Like, how are you doing in this? You know, and we don't really say that anymore. We just begin. And I, I kind of feel like we always should because it's, yeah. you know, even though it's not of something so abnormal, it's just, you know, it's all kind of abnormal. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love that we're talking about this right now too, because I mean, we're recording this and in real time, it's 2023 so it's been whatever it's been it's it's been 3 plus years since and we're still like not just us two we as a collective are still talking about that time when the world shut down and we're still talking about you know sort of coming back into the world after that and you know neither one of us have human children i have i have a dog child um but neither one of us have human children and i think this conversation is amplified even more for people who have yeah. kids who are going through that time. But I do think that we are still going through a, a little bit of, uh, someone put it so well the other day, and I can't think of the term, but basically like social growing pains of, okay, we all went through this collectively traumatic experience together and we had to reimagine how we were being social and how we built our social groups and our relationships, which many of us weren't feeling that solid in to begin with. Like, I think that so many of us are just cosplaying adulthood, but we're really like looking for those relationships that maybe came easier when we were kids because we were all, we were all as when we're younger, we're all more similar, right? Because we all have more similar life experiences. And as we get older, we diversify and I think now that we are in a post-2020 world and we are able to be in person again, however, we are also meeting on Zoom, we're doing FaceTimes. I think so many of us are trying to figure out what do my relationships look like on a day-to-day -day level and what does it look like to build a history with someone and what do my relationships say about me? And I know that that's something that I struggled with a little while I was in the process of writing this book because I am such a hermit and I need to sort of hold myself away when I am working on something really big and creative. And I mean, I wrote it. I've spent the last six years writing it. We've had so many conversations about it over those dinners when all of you were writing books and publishing books and you were saying so kindly to me, like your time is going to come. It will happen. Um, but once I really started and that was in July, 
December 2019. Um, and then I finished the manuscript in July 2020. And then I went on the whole agent journey and publisher journey, and then took that base of a manuscript and like, had to build it out from there. Um, I think that I felt very guilty and very confused sometimes as to what does it mean to be in relationship with other people when you are going through so much yeah. in inside of your head. And I think that that's how many of us experience 2020 and we're still coming out of it. 100%. That's, well, it's interesting. It's, I, like I said, I have copious notes of things I want to ask you. And, and one of them is related to this about casual negativity. Mm-hmm. And I think to, to your point about friendship and relationships and what I like to call sometimes like keeping it warm, you know, like keeping in touch with people, but keeping it warm. Sometimes you have a relationship that's long-term and you know, like I've had to flake on the last few things or I've missed a couple of things, but I know we're going to pick up right where we left off. And there are other times where I feel really anxious about that, or I know that I've missed too many things, or maybe I've, you know, I'm pulled in too many directions or, or more likely it's, I feel like I'm not going to be very good company right now. So I don't want to show up and and do casual negativity. I want to work through this so I can really be there better. But then, you know, to my point earlier, sometimes it is good to just show up as you are. And even if that's a raw nerve and just allow that to be okay too. But there's a, there's a balance of, of what, what works, I think there. And it, you constantly have to discern it and constantly have to it, it changes. And I think you have to be malleable about it. And then, and then it's a level of communication and confidence and, and faith in the relationship. But to your other point, outside of casual negativity, what you said there about hermitage and needing space for a creative project, I feel that way too. It's like, if I'm worried that I would, you know, dive in a little bit into negativity and I don't want to, I want to reschedule or because I just need to I need a lot of space to make something and I'm not I'm going to be distracted if I don't get my homework done first, you know what I mean, if mm-hmm. I don't ha- if I have something hanging over my head. So, how do you what have you learned about navigating that? Like what is what has helped you to keep in touch with people? And it's something that I'm I'm struggling with a little bit. How would how has this played out for you especially in launching a book? And I want to back up and say, congratulations on the book. I don't know if I said that at the beginning or if I just said it in a voice text to you, but I am so happy for you. It's been such a delight to listen to you talk about it on other podcasts and to see it there behind you and to know, like you said, hearing every step of the way, like this is such a dream for you. And it's so, so, so well-deserved and so you know, you, you knocked it out of the park and I'm, I'm just so happy for you and congratulate. And I want to talk about it way more, but I just wanted to say that. (laughs) Well, thank you. I love you. Um, yeah, I think that that was when people talk about writing a book and they talk about it being so hard. I think that the way that I at least heard that before I was in the process myself was in relationship to like the actual writing of the book. Writing the book for me was actually 
not the hardest part at all. It, it was challenging, but it was challenging like doing, like figuring out a, a really complicated puzzle. So it was incredibly stimulating. I was incredibly invested the entire time. And I know some people that's not their experience. Um, my experience was, oh, wow, you are so cut out for the process of writing a book. And, you know, like we've talked about this before, but it's based on literal decades work of yeah. a worth of work that I've been doing. So by the time that it came to write the book, it, it, um, it all made sense to me. And it was fun to put together the pieces, but what ended up being the hardest was my own feelings about the feelings that I was having in regards to me writing or me needing, I'm, I'm someone who needs a lot of brain space. I need a lot of space, especially during the day to just sort of process up here. And then once I get to the page or the laptop or whatever it is, it, it all sort of comes out of me, but that's because I've spent so long doing work in a way that nobody can see because it's just been in my head. And I started to feel like I was being absent for people. And I had to, there, there were two things. Well, first of all, a lot of therapy and two therapists, <laughs> by the way, um, and, and talking about it a lot in therapy helped. But I really had to be honest with what was the reality of the situation and what was the emotions of the situation and what were assumptions that I was leaping to without even having a conversation with people. And I also had to tell myself, like, if people are angry with you for falling off the grid and they don't know why you are falling off the grid, so to speak, like that's kind of on you as in on me because I haven't filled them in. And so I started to just be really honest with people about what I was going through, what my process was, really honest with myself about when I was able to show up fully and when I wanted to show up, but I couldn't show up fully, like we were just talking about, um, I would say things to people like, if I seem a little scattered right now, it, it's because I am, or if I seem like a, like a, my head is in the clouds, like I promise I'm here with you, but my brain is a, a very busy and complicated place to be right now. And so letting people in on where I was, was really, really helpful when it came to the relationships themselves. And I think that it actually made my relationships stronger. And it allowed me to, instead of creating a narrative of what I assumed was happening, it allowed me to gather information on what was actually happening because I was having a dialogue with other people instead of a monologue just by myself. And then when it came to those times where I was like, oh, I feel guilty. I haven't seen people in however long, or this person is having this thing and I really want to go, but like, I, I can't show up fully. First, I would tell myself it's better to, if this is someone that is important to you and something that's important to you, like it's better to show up and show up for 15 minutes and then leave, just mm -hmm. be upfront with that right at the beginning, then 
not show up at all. And I did that. And that I think is something that people, especially in like the mental health and mindset community can be very dogmatic about never go to anything. If you're not, if it's not a full, yes, it's a hell no. Like sometimes it's a, let's see. Yeah. You know, I live my life that way as well. Yeah. So sometimes you have to lean into the let's see of it. And then I think something else that really stuck to me, uh, stuck with me during that time is one of my therapists who I actually found through you. Um, <laughs> she said, I think we me, were all seeing this therapist. That was my therapist. There um, was a period where we were all seeing the same therapist. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do still see her. Um, I haven't seen her in a bit. I actually have been meaning to reach out to schedule a session, but she and her husband, which is a conversation that, um, I'll put a pin in and we can discuss later if you want on or off the air, but I did a cabaret for my book launch uh-huh. and she and her husband came to the cabaret oh my God. because she's like a super theater and musical theater person. So she was living for it. But she said to me, speaking of theater, actually, this is yeah. a great segue, She said to me during this time, because I do have a a theater background, that's what I went to school for and what I did, you know, throughout my late teens and early 20s. She said, Katie, if you were in a show and you had to go to rehearsal or you had to learn your lines, you wouldn't be feeling guilty for, you probably wouldn't be feeling guilty, right? Like for not going to these things or that you weren't being social. And I, I was like, of course, I would be learning my lines or I'd be at rehearsal. And she said, well, is part of this then because the thing that you are doing is on your own time clock. So it's about your own time management. And I was like, absolutely. I think that the fact that when you're writing a book, obviously, you know, if you're working with a publisher, especially you're on specific deadlines, but when you're writing a book, so much of it is up to your own time management. And so it can be very easy to say, well, I have, I don't know, five months to turn in my first draft of this book. I could just move things here and move things here and see all of the people and do all of the things, um, which is not what is the best decision if you need to write a book. Um, That's very relatable outside of book writing, like totally as a freelancer or as someone who works for themselves. I, I relate to that a lot of someone who works from home. I think this has been coming up for a lot of people of just, yeah, I don't have to do this right now, but I know I'm not going to have the energy for it later. So I still can't go to your thing because I really have to do this now. But okay, I'll just go to your thing because I don't technically have to. I don't have a boss, you know? It's right. I just wanted to say that I feel like that's a, a very relatable thing, but please go on. I, I didn't mean to cut you off your thought. No, I'm I'm so happy you brought that up because I think that I hear it a lot because I also do I do private coaching with people. And so I do hear it a lot from people who are either freelancers or maybe they are people who have their own private practice. I think that when we are the ones that we are reporting to, it can really blur the lines between what is the priority here because it can feel like everything is the priority. And so Once I started to treat the process like I would, because I have the theater background, like I would a rehearsal or learning my lines, 
that's when I was able to start to sort of tease all of these different things apart and sort of put things in different priority buckets. And by that, I don't mean the must do's and the would like to do's. I mean, okay, this is a priority when it comes to my work. This is a priority when it comes to my interpersonal relationships. This is a priority when it comes to my own personal health and well-being. And I was able to see what went where, what was important to me, and what is the bare minimum that I need to do personally to feel like, okay, cool, I am solid. Even if in the moment I'm like, you know, I don't really want to go to this thing, or I don't want to sit and work on this chapter, or I don't want to go work out, or I'd rather order DoorDash instead of cooking myself anything that's in my fridge right now. I took the pressure off of myself from going all out on all of the things and really stripped it down to if there was one thing that I could do right now to show myself that I have got my own back, then what that's doing is that's building self-trust. And that self-trust that is going to take me through all of these different areas of my life from friendships to work, like so much of that self-doubt starts to get quieter and starts to fall away when those moments of self-trust are being built. And I know you talked about casual negativity as well. And I want to talk about that, but I know that was like a, a, a big chunk of a thought there. Well, I did that terrible interviewer move of lumping 17 questions into one. But I mean, I think that's that's really useful for people regardless of the situation because we're all sort of in that situation, whether you have a full-time job or you're a freelancer or you're a parent or you're a student or whatever it is mm-hmm. of so much of our time is within our own hands and we have to constantly discern what the correct move is and and dis- it's decision making you know it's prioritization mm-hmm. it's scoping it's dis- it's constantly something that i find very challenging and have found challenging in in a plethora of ways you know i think when i first moved here i was really building a community of friends. And it was so different from New York in so many ways. And I think it was, you know, it being the pandemic or whatever it was, but it felt like college. Like it felt like Mm -hmm. I had for the first, and I didn't have that really in my early twenties, but I, I had this sort of tight knit group, but I also was like, oh, I'm not getting anything done work wise and I'm Mm -hmm. falling behind. And I think that was sort of okay at the time in a way because it was the pandemic, but then it time passed and I was like, oh, I have to like figure out how to be a friend and also have community and get my work done, you know, without mm-hmm. having the the deadlines of accountability of another person. Because when it is yourself, you can very easily switch those and it it can be more malleable. So Anyway, I think all of that is is incredibly useful and I'm I'm still very much figuring it out and and figuring out how to yeah, self-reliance and and self-trust and and then also not every I I also want to pick up on like what you said about not every 
event you go to or hangout that you go to is going to be fulfilling or give you energy, or maybe you'll really help someone, or maybe you will feel a bit depleted, but you never know. And, and I, I too, I know sometimes I will, it's just easier exactly to your point for me to go or for Mm -hmm. me to pick up the phone or whatever it is, because I'm just going to be thinking about, it's going to take up so much space in my brain that is easier if I just go check it out because, and I, I think there's probably a, a therapist or a world in which I could try to work on that part of my brain, but it's honestly easier for me at this point to just do a, a party lap or stop in yeah. or just say hi, because I know I'll be thinking like, and it's not even really in a way of guilt for me anymore. It's not like, oh, they're going to be mad at me or s- sometimes that still comes up for sure. But it's often like, it's just me wondering like, well, Maybe if I went, I would have made a new friend or maybe I'd, you know, have this really fun time or maybe I would have, I, you never know what's around the corner. You know, there's, which is <laughs> right. maybe romantic comedies have ruined me in, for that, but it's, it, it's less about the guilt and more about that. Do you experience that? I feel like for me, what I experience is, like, I, I mean, it's hard because I think that this is something I've been so aware of for a while. So I've really like I've I've worked on this so much with myself that I what I do now is I automatically kind of go to like putting myself in the other person's shoes. And so I think, OK, well, if this was I don't know, let's just say my birthday party or book launch event or, uh, hey, I don't know, a, a hang by, by the river in the summer with a picnic blanket. And if my friend, if it was between my friends saying that they could come and stop by for 10 minutes or they wouldn't come, like, of course I would want to see them for those totally. 10 minutes. And also I would 1000% understand if they couldn't come. And so I think that it's also about knowing the relationship to the person. I think that I I am less about, well, what relationship could I build or what adventure could be around the corner? Um, I am very, very much a homebody. And uh, I my life is very simple on the outside because it's very complex on the inside and very busy on the inside. Um And so I think that for me, I, you know, when I was younger, I had a really hard time writing thank you notes to people and not because I didn't know what to say or I didn't want to do it, but I felt like my thank yous were never sufficient enough. And I I mean, I think back to my bat mitzvah, I think I got through maybe three bat mitzvah thank you notes. And obviously I remember it still. So it still weighs on me to this day. But I think that that's sometimes what I can, the trap that I can fall into for myself is I want people to know how much I actually care about them. And sometimes that can, in my brain, feel like it's in conflict with what I'm showing on the outside. And so it's always about just getting really curious about what actually lights my friends up versus what I think might light them up. Mm. And also like actually to loop it back to the casual negativity thing, casual negativity, by the way, for anybody who's listening and is like, eh, it's the negativity that we use 
in our day-to-day lives that is as emotionless as saying, this guy is blue, this wall is white, I hate what I did there, or I'm so silly, or my thighs are this, you know, the stuff that we say that is putting ourselves down or demeaning a part of ourselves. This is big when it comes to like self-deprecating humor that we say super casually and we usually say it in the neutral times. And the reason why that is so dangerous is because if that's the language that we are leaning on in the neutral times, then in the hardest times of our lives, like, of course, we are going to feel like we are struggling with this, this inundation of negative self-talk, not because this is necessarily how we're feeling, but it's the habit that we're used to being in. It's the language that we have been teaching ourselves and we've become fluent in without even knowing that. And so I think it's also really important to find the friends who are able to speak the same type of language as you. So like one of my best, best, best friends, she and I talk a lot about our social battery. And we talk Mm. about like, having a no people day, or we call it no talkie days. And um, she'll just say, like, like, my battery is my battery is low, or I need to stare at the ceiling day. And because even though it's it's just one person, because this is someone who I'm so close with. And because it's someone who we have that shorthand, and that feels so easy to us. That's also me practicing my language that I'm using with other people. So I say to other people, my social battery is my batteries at empty, or I need to recharge, or I need to go stare at the ceiling. I say that because I have these conversations so often with my other friend, it becomes easier. And so I think being able to, even if it's one person, have those types of people in your life where you feel like you can have those conversations with in a way that doesn't feel so weighty and so like I'm letting people in on this part of me that I don't let anyone else in and I'm so secretive about it. Like if there's someone that to use a word that you use a lot, if there's someone that you can be cozy with when it comes to that type of language, I found like for me, it it really helps me when it comes to living my life out there in the world with other people. Absolutely. I think shared language is just incredibly useful from a communication standpoint. And our our shared therapist, she really has been instrumental with me about communicating. Like that's kind of a, a huge pillar of her and her husband's work. And in with NLP, which is what they specialize in. And I think similarly, I like the social battery more, but I had someone on the podcast, Whitney Bell, several years ago, and her therapist, who she, I still remember her name is Jennifer. She called her by name. And Jennifer used a similar bucket of language that I think this is common in the chronic pain community where it's called spoon theory, where spoons, yeah. Yeah, we each wake up with a certain amount of spoons. Like I might have seven when I wake up in the morning, you might have 12 somebody else might have 24 and every interaction and everything that happens to us through the day either gives us spoons 
or remove spoons from us. So uh, this right now, I'm I'm having a great time talking to my friend. I'm going to l- gain one spoon. If mm-hmm. I go outside and have a parking ticket on my car, lose three spoons. Weird conversation with my friend's landlord, minus four spoons. You know, So then by the end of the day, if I had a plan for dinner, but I'm now at a deficit based on what happened, then I can say to my friend, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to still come, but I got it. I got to be honest with you. I'm spoonless. And Mm -hmm. I told my friend Sophie this, and we use that like nobody's business, you know, where we'll say pretty much every time we get together, like, I'm pretty spoonless or I'm, you know, and it it really is helpful, I think, in, in any relationship where you have constant, you know, contact with people. I think it's such a great you know, whether it's the social, but everyone can, you know, you can make, you can use forks, you can use whatever you want, but, <laughs> yeah. but it's a great it, shared language is so useful. I mean, I think that's why we all have the fascination with astrology and Enneagram and human design or Myers-Briggs. It's, it's a shared way to be like, this is how I am. See me, let me know how mm-hmm. you are so I can see you more clearly. And we can talk about it in a way that we both understand. And I think that there's, there's a real beauty to that. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, like so many things that are of such big importance, shared language, language in general, it is so important because it can be so helpful or it can also be so harmful. I mean, when we end up like back to the casual negativity, but even when we end up talking about things like I don't know, like self-love. That's a a phrase that many of us have probably heard before. And when we're all talking about that we should love ourselves and just love yourself and self-love, and we're not clear on what that actually means, what can end up happening is we feel like, well, everybody's talking about this thing, but I actually don't know what they're talking about. And so I am such... I mean, I'm, I'm such a words person. My, I joke that my best friends are the thesaurus and the etymology dictionary. Like I'm, I'm so, so curious about where words came from, why we use the words that we use, um, and what's actually going on behind it. What words are we plastering over this, this experience that we're having that actually shouldn't be supposed described by those words to begin with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't your mom give you a dictionary when for your yes. birthday or something? Yeah. For my, like, I think it was my 11th or 12th birthday. And um, yeah, I wish that I had it with me in New York. It's, it's at my parents' house. It's this big red dictionary and at the front. I only remember that my mom gave it to me because at the front, it was one of those pages that said like, to blank from blank. And I made her, she gave it to me and I was like, write your name, write it down. And so she wrote to Katie from mommy, happy birthday. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, we got to find that and get a photo. Can I post it when we post this episode? hundred percent. I will have my mom find it. I'm sure she knows exactly where it is in the house. Not kidding. I'm sure she does. I love that. I mean, I think it, it, Coming from the Midwest where everyone seems to be very indirect and it's kind of like, what are you saying? Like a lot of talking, but not really saying anything. It's something mm-hmm. that I I struggle with the clarity and I still do it now where I'll be in a tough conversation and I won't really know how I feel or what to say, but I just keep 
speaking. And I've had mm-hmm. a couple of interesting experiences recently where someone's been like, wait, what? Like, what did, and I'm like, honestly, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like, hold on a second. Like, I need to sleep. <laughs> what I really mean is like, I don't know. And what I really mean is I need to sleep on it or I'm embarrassed or, you know, what? I, but I just said something else to fill the silence. And mm-hmm. that's an uncomfortable, embarrassing thing, but it's, it's not having the language or not knowing. So just saying something else. And I think that's a really inefficient way to, to handle things. <laughs> yeah. I think that Jeremy, my husband, Jeremy, who, you know, um, he's helped me a lot with that because I think that he is one of, one of the best conversationalists that I've ever met. I was about to say one of the best listeners, but if, if you ask him what I told him that he needed to remember last night, like he probably couldn't repeat it this morning. Um, but he's, he is so wonderful at having such a present conversation and allowing there to be silence. And I think that you and I have talked about our families a lot together and our mothers and our relationship with our mothers. And I think that my mom and my mom's side of the family, really, I come from a very big, loud family where everybody is sort of talking over one another at the same time. And not because they don't respect what the other person is saying, but I I actually said this to my mom the last time I was home, she was talking with someone and they were both, I could tell that they were both sort of getting frustrated with each other. And later I was talking to my mom and I was like, well, mom, they're just a relay race conversationalist and you're playing ping pong. Mm. So she really like bounces the ball back and forth really quickly. And some people, they have the baton and they're running and then they will very deliberately pass it off to you. And some people, I think this is the way that I am. And I think it's the way you are. Um, This is not clinical, by the way. I just made this up. Some people are more they have conversations more like a dance and it's more about the rhythm of the conversation. Um, And I think that Jeremy is really good at sensing the rhythms of the conversation. And sometimes just like in a wonderful piece of music or in a dance, sometimes there's stillness and sometimes there's silence. And he picked up very early on in our relationship. It was like, you know, you don't, have to fill the space all of the time. You can just be. And I was like, huh, I wonder what would happen if I didn't try to fill the space and I was just being. And I think that that's something that I am trying to practice over and over and over again. Um, And sometimes I do it well and sometimes I don't. But I've learned how to allow for the space in the conversations. I've learned to embrace that sometimes when I am thinking of something really deeply, I slow down and I don't have to be self-conscious about that. Like, I think I was listening to, maybe it was Brene Brown. I forget who it was on a podcast. And I was like, they are so intentional with their words. And if people aren't annoyed that this person is talking slower than, you know, the double time podcast speed, then they probably won't be annoyed if I'm talking at that speed as well. Um, And I think being able to have like a stable of curious questions to ask people or even things like say more words about that 
like phrases like that. I think that that's really helped me when it comes to the dance of being in relationship with people, really. Gosh, I mean, I want to let's talk about Jeremy for a second, because something Mm -hmm. I wrote down that is completely unrelated to your book that I have copious notes about, which we'll get to, is something that you told me. This might be private, so feel free to be like, no, thank you. Okay. This was years and years ago, and I remember you telling me about a journaling activity that you and Jeremy would do from time to time, and it was so cool. I believe you called it a planned freakout. Oh, yes. And you would go (laughs) to a very special bar, and you would get old fashions, I think, and you would tell us everything. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by The Creative Clinic. The Creative Clinic is my creative clinic that I made up. Listen, it's a made up name for what I do, but I help writers write. I help podcasters speak. I help musicians play, ceramicists to spin the wheel or hand build, chefs to cook, making progress even when it's incremental in our creative pursuits helps create momentum. So that's what I help people do in sessions. Some of you listening may have experienced them and every single person that I've worked with has become someone really special in my life because I get so much out of doing creative consulting. The way that sessions work are we talk on the phone and you know I provide accountability and encouragement as needed. I am a projector in human design if that means anything to you. But basically I'm pretty good at noticing patterns in other people, especially when I have distance and when I care, I can clock things over time that I'm able to notice and reflect back. And so I give homework related to that. I help brainstorm solutions for career dissatisfaction, for creative blocks, for procrastination, and honestly, often all three of those at the same time. But essentially, you know, I'm I'm being an anchor for you the person that I'm working with to lean on throughout often times of change, pivoting, or just wanting to, you know, focus in deeper onto something. So we can call it the creative clinic. You can call it performance art. You can call it art advising. You can call it a spirit guide, abstract life coaching, whatever you would like, regardless of title. My goal is to be useful. I decided to adapt the word clinic after I was eavesdropping on my really good friend, Erin. You might you might know Erin. She's been on the podcast before. She's an incredible author and herbalist, and she's a naturopath. She's a doctor, and she has a clinic. And when I was visiting her, I really admired the way she deeply listened to her patients. And I aim to provide that same level of creative care and bedside manner that she provided, you know, with her herbal care. Let me know if you would like to book a session. In the last 12 months, I've consulted with several writers, a jewelry designer, a yoga teacher, a chef, two photographers, a doula, a health coach. Trying to think. If you would like to be part of this incredible group of people that I've gotten to talk to and be an anchor for, let me know. And I would love to to speak with you. So if you would like to work with me and you still want a lot more information because I'm not telling you every single thing in this little mini ad, book a call with me. Let's talk on the phone and see if it's a fit for you. All right. I am so excited to hopefully hear from some of you. It's a really special part of my work when I get to work with people one-on-one and share lessons from my successes and my failures and 
help to notice, you know, with noticing those patterns, people's blind spots that, you know, maybe they're just too close to a project or situation to see. I'm able to uncover fears or limiting beliefs that are potentially holding someone back from from taking a creative risk. So I would love to talk to you more about it and get into the creative process, which is messy. And, you know, sometimes we're down and other people can pick us up. And I am pretty good at being that person. You know, it has to be someone who you feel comfortable with and you relate to. My approach is gentle. There are no hacks. (laughs) And I would love to talk about this. So again, let me know if you would like to book a session. It's great for if you're in a rut or if you need a tune-up. We talk by phone. That's where the sessions are. (laughs) And voice text in between sessions. Okay, so let me know. My availability is limited. I only work with a very few people at a time. I have never done an ad for this in the podcast, but I'm doing it right now. Reach out. Let me know if this sounds like something that you would want to do with me. I have two open spots currently, but I'm happy to make a wait list if needed. This episode is brought to you by The Narrative Method. So I recently met this incredible punk rock singer turned psychotherapist who created a model and movement for human connection. It's called The Narrative Method. It's a nonprofit that is actually run by my neighbor, my really good friend, Micah. And what The Narrative Method does is it it uses creative expression to connect us more deeply to ourselves and to each other. It has so much in common with Let It Out. If you know anything at all about this show, you know that those are high up in my values and topics that come up on the podcast often. And you'll have heard a lot about the narrative method over these last couple months. I actually spoke to the founder, Sherry. I am so grateful that this organization exists. The narrative method, like I said, it's a nonprofit. It's proven. It's science backed. There have been over 30,000 participants who have experienced that. The narrative method is an experience that you can do from the comfort of your own home. They do salons five days a week on Zoom. It's completely free. You can just book a spot The link will be in the show notes to do so. If you are craving connection and looking to get more creative in a space that feels like home, look into the narrative method. It's completely free. You have nothing to lose. Five free salons happen every single week, including four writing salons and one conversation salon. Visit thenarrativemethod.org today and start connecting in a whole new way. I can't wait to see you there. Okay, back to the show. Yes. Okay. This is very, this is like the opposite of private now because it's actually, it's in the later parts of the book. Oh my gosh. Okay. And everybody wants to talk about the freaking planned freak out. Okay, great. It's so funny that I hadn't, I I hadn't got in there and I just brought it up from friendship. So that's, that's a pro for me. I love, I love that so much. And I love that you remembered that we went to a hotel bar and we got old fashions. And I will say that that's something that when Phoebe came, she was on a a long vacation. She came home and her book arrived and she like posted something on social media about it. And she also said, and she hadn't read the book yet, but she said off of memory, she's like, so I see in the table of contents, like there's something about Katie and her husband do a planned freak out where they go to a hotel and I think they get a fancy cocktail. So I just love that this is something that I don't know for me, like I will talk about the exercise in a second, but for me, I love that my friends remember those specifics and that it's in the book. Like that to me is a sign 
that a little sign, but it's a sign that I am being consistent throughout my entire life. Like I'm not putting on some like razzle dazzle authory show. And I, I am me wherever I go. And so, so I'm so happy that you brought that up. <laughs> but the planned freak out is exactly what it sounds like. It is a structured way to lose your shit and then find it again. So the trick to a planned freak out is that you have to plan it. You can't just say, ooh, things are feeling overwhelming, so I'm going to do my planned freak out this weekend. The planned freak out is something that you do in either the completely neutral times or the times where you just start to feel like, okay, things are starting to feel a little bit overwhelming. And if this kept going for a while, then we might be in trouble. And so this was an exercise that... Jeremy actually thought of right when we first moved to New York and we had not processed. I mean, you know, you've done that this. move. I remember you, I think you probably told me about this in real time. Cause I remember probably about, yeah, that time. Yeah. Cause you moved, did you move in 2016 or 17? 16. And it okay, must've been right around the time that you did. Yeah. Like you moved towards the end of the year, right? Exactly. Yeah. Cause I remember being in coats with you. Um, yeah. So I must've done, we must've done our very first PFO, like right when you moved to New York and we went to a hotel, we got old fashions at the time, um, way too expensive, but they were very pretty. And I thought that this was just going to be like a time for us to go and just vent and let loose. But Jeremy is very structured. And so he, was like, okay, we're going to bring our notebooks and here's what we're going to do. We're going to open up to a spread of pages and on one side, we're going to write things I hate. Then on the other side, we're going to write things I dislike and we're going to set a timer and we're going to set it. I think we set it for 10 minutes, but then we needed more. So we reset it for 10 more minutes and we're just going to go. We're going to write. And so at first, that was really hard for me because I was like, what do I hate? Um, I don't know. I hate social injustice. Like I, I, what, what falls into this category? And I think that alone was a really valuable, like part of the exercise, even getting clear on, okay, well, what's actually getting under my skin and what gets under it so much that I can put it in the hate category. Cause hate is a very, very emotionally heavy word. And what's the stuff that's just like annoying or frustrating that I dislike? And then after that, we went through and then he flipped a page. I drew a line underneath both of them and we wrote, so what the fuck am I going to do about it? And then we set another timer and we wrote all of the things. And it wasn't about fixing all of the problems or solving all of the problems in the moment. It was just about thinking okay, what are some proactive active, uh, action steps that I can take to address these things instead of just being angry at them or on the flip side, trying to push them down or wipe them away? So that's the first part of the exercise. Then we took a pause. I believe we ordered some French fries or olives, highly recommended. And then we opened up another spread of pages and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to write things I love on one side of the page and we're going to write things I like on the other side of the page. And we did the exact same thing. 
We set the timer, we listed them out. And then after we drew a line or he flipped a page and he wrote, so what the fuck am I going to do about it? And so what that ended up doing is it created a sense of control and agency in a time where we were feeling like maybe we didn't have a lot of that. It gave us some clarity around the things that were actually getting under our skin. And it also gave us clarity around the things that were bringing us joy or lighting us up. And there were certain things on there that it was like, I love this thing. I don't just like it. I love it. Why don't I do this more? And so, I don't know, maybe one of the things was walking to the coffee shop in the morning, getting a coffee. Very easy thing. This was before we had Frankie and we had to walk her every morning. and. Maybe that's something that I put under the love, like time together, walking to get coffee in the morning. So what the fuck am I going to do about it? Schedule two days a week where you're walking in the morning to the coffee shop and getting a coffee together. Like these small things can make such a huge difference when it comes to building out our lives and how we feel about our lives, because how we feel about our lives usually isn't these one-off things, right? Like, you know this so deeply. It's about these small micro moments that are peppered throughout your days that then become your weeks, then become your months, then your years. And like, that's how you build a life. A hundred percent. I really... I love that. I, I'm I'm due for one. I <laughs> I'm over overdue for one, and I'm going to do this exercise. And you know, I love I love a journaling exercise, and I remembered all of that. And I, I think there's something about doing it with someone else that mm-hmm. I find really because then you have the accountability and the support. And you said you you said this out loud to to Jeremy, and you shared this with each other. So then you're going to feel embarrassed in a way, or you're, you're just more likely to follow through. I think having that two people having a vision around something. So even if you don't do this with your partner, if you don't have one or you don't want to doing it with, with someone I think is, or sharing it with someone I think could be really useful. I'm going to try to try to do that with myself, with someone. I think I think that being able, you spot on, being able to say it out loud and have someone receive it while the parameters of the exercise are not to fix the thing and have a dialogue about it. I think that's really, um, it's really key and that's really special. So people have been talking to me about like facilitating a planned freak out. So I was thinking of maybe doing one virtually that I would love to have you at. Um, so I can be your PFO buddy. Great. That's perfect. <laughs> I would love it. What an honor and a privilege. That would be so great. I I, I think that's such a good idea. Gosh, I have a laundry list of, of questions for you that I'm going to do as sort of rapid fire. And then I have a great. surprise for you, <gasps> the segment of the show that I've been calling Asking for a Friend. I have pulled a couple of our mutual friends, so I have some some questions oh. from them. Oh, I'm so excited for all of this. <laughs> all of this and more coming right up on this program. Okay. So you said on another podcast about how you shift a negative thought by asking yourself what your priority in a situation is. And I really liked that. And we talked a bit about actual prioritization in terms of plans and plan, you know, 
working on a project or or guilt and seeing people. But can you talk about that related to self-talk? Yeah. So this is something that I talk about early on in the book. And the way I've structured the book, just to like give people a little bit of background, is the book is called Want Yourself. And the subtitle is Shift Your Self-Talk and Unearth the Strength and Who You Were All Along. And the sort of thesis statement of the book is that if you want to shift your self-talk, you actually can't start with the talk part because the talk part is symptomatic. In order to make real lasting shifts, you have to start with the first part of the equation, which is the self part of the equation. And so this is very, very early on in the book, in the journey that you go on in the book, which is basically figuring out why you need a sense of self, finding yourself, being yourself out loud, staying yourself when life keeps lifing and things are hard, and then wanting the self that you have. And so I believe that this is so early in the book that it's still in the part of the book that is talking about like, why do I need a sense of self? And what does it mean to actually find that person? Because it's it's not a search, it's, it's a dig inside. So I give, I believe it's five questions that people can ask themselves if they are stuck in a negative self-talk loop. And that for me is defined by anything that you just keep saying to yourself over and over and over again, that is sort of like the the record that's on loop in your brain. So one of the questions is, do I like the idea of making a shift? Or do I just like the process of trying to figure it out? Because some of us like to, without even knowing that we like to sort of whether you want to call it complain or feel sad or guilty, or whatever, we we keep ourselves in this place of feeling like there's something that we need to fix. And we don't necessarily want what's on the other side of that seeming fix, even if fixing isn't the solution, right? Because in many times it's not about fixing or solving. It's about looking at what, what's underneath. Um And so getting clear on like what actually you're talking about is really important. And then one of the other ones, like you mentioned, is asking yourself, what is my priority? Is this one of them? So for example, let's say that I feel like this is very relatable for people. Let's say that you are going to be on a Zoom meeting or on FaceTime with someone and you like haven't done your hair yet or you don't have your makeup on or maybe it's offline and you're going to, I don't know, a coffee meeting with someone or you're going to meet someone for something and you're trying to find the perfect outfit and you could get into that loop of, I don't look a certain way or, oh, like for me, sometimes it'll be like, oh, I look so tired or I look this way and you can start to cycle through okay, what outfit is going to be the just right outfit to wear? Or, well, maybe if I put on a little more concealer here, maybe if I just curled my hair instead of straightened it, those things. Changing your outfit 17 times, clothes all over your bed. <laughs> oh, 100%. And I've never done that. Both, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking like just hypothetically, like if one was to do that, I definitely never do that. Um, but 
if you stop in the moment and you ask yourself, what is my priority? Is this one of them? Unless you are going to a makeup or hairstyle or fashion convention, probably your hair or makeup or outfit is not going to be the priority in the situation. It's probably going to be the priority that you show up for the Zoom meeting or you go and see your friend or any of these other things that you're like getting ready for. And I found that that for me has been so helpful, especially in this time of my life where I am doing a lot of media and I do want to look a certain way and I do want to look put together. And sometimes it's like, okay, well, you could keep doing this but then you're not going to get to the studio on time to film this TV segment. Like that's the priority. And I think that a lot of times we can convince ourselves that things are the priorities when they're not, not because we have misplaced priorities, but many times it's because we care so much because the reason that we want to have that outfit or have our hair a certain way or makeup a certain way is because we want to feel the connection or feel accepted or feel loved or feel like we fit in or whatever it is. And so I think asking that question, this was a very non quick fire answer, but I think asking that question of yourself of what is the priority? Is this one of them is a really fantastic way to sort of um, double check and double click and fact check. That's, that's what I was trying to say. Fact check your negative self-talk. Yeah, I, I loved this because I think it reminds me of the my Angelou. People don't care what you wore, what you said; they care how they how you made them feel. I think mm-hmm. about that quote. I'm getting it wrong, but it's something like that. I think about that a lot when I'm in that situation, either post hangout or post meeting or post date or whatever it is, where I'm like spiraling after the fact. And I'm like, well, I I can't control how I made them feel. Like that's just Mm -hmm. no matter what I did or say or what I wore. But pre-going somewhere, I am very susceptible to exactly, as we all are, to what what you were just talking about. And it can make you late. It can make you go in with this anxious energy because now I'm, you know, I've changed my outfit seven times and and I feel a little bit of foolishness or ashamed about that in some way. And what I loved about this is that it, you know, it validates you're not being silly, you're not being ridiculous. This is how you feel. And also, it's not your priority to look a certain way. So instead, just notice you're feeling that way, pivot over here. And I found that incredibly useful. And even even last night, I was I was going up to meet up with friends and I put an outfit on and then I got down to my car and I was like, I don't think I like this outfit. And I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to just go. Cause it's yeah. not my priority to, I could change my outfit and I could still not like that outfit, of course. But I, there is something about, I'll, I'll think that it will give me a bit more confidence to, if we know what it, and this is maybe a body image issue, but we know what it feels like to be wearing an outfit that's like a bit too tight or you just haven't worn before, you don't feel really comfortable in. And I think sometimes it's like, okay, wait, well, it will actually really help me if I change right now. Like it is a priority (laughs) because I will 
I will feel better and more like myself and more comfortable if I go back upstairs, you know? So it's, it, again, it's like a moment to moment discerning thing and self honesty, but no, the priority question is, is such a good one. I, I really loved that. I'm so happy. That's yeah. yeah. It's, it's personally been a game changer for me as well. So I'm so happy that it spoke to you too. Yeah, no, it's so good. And another thing that I heard you talk about is, and it was just sort of a passing thing, but you were saying how not getting asked what we want to be when we grow up anymore after like 25 is, is challenging, you know, and, and it's something that I, and you know, you were saying we have to ask ourselves our own questions. And, and I would love if you could say more about that because it's something that's been coming up for me recently. And, and maybe you can tell me what you, what you think about this, but you know, as you know, I, I had some successes sort of early on. And then the last couple of years, I've been feeling really stagnant and stuck and it's been very quiet. And I, and that's been challenging. And I Mm. am older than I was prior to the, you know, that's how years work, I guess. (laughs) And (laughs) Having a dream, I, I realized recently. I, it's so funny. My my good friend Stella is a like you studied acting and and she found all her old um, headshots in her mom's garage and from when she was like very young and she signed them to all of us and like gave them to our friends and so I hung one up in my bathroom and she wrote follow your dreams, Katie, and I saw it yesterday and I'm like listening to you on the podcast and you're talking about that being, you know, not getting asked what you want to be when you grow up after 25. And I looked at that, follow your dreams. And I was like, but I'm 33 years old. Like I can't, I don't have a dream because I'm a bit too realistic now. Like I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't, it's not really, I don't believe in myself. I like know too much. And I just, I'm not even, a. I dreamed so much back then. I kind of thought every, I was delusional and I kind of thought everything was possible, but that delusion sort of served me. So why did you think that it isn't, you know, we don't get, not getting asked that question. Like what's sort of an anecdote for that? Or what did you mean by that? Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because I was just talking to a friend of mine. Her name is Karen Walrund. And she wrote a phenomenal book that came out like a month ago now. So it came out um, a couple weeks after, after Want Yourself came out and it's called Radiant Rebellion. And it's all about reclaiming aging and living joyfully. And in the book, she talks about why we feel the way that we do about age, especially in this country um, and the systems that have contributed to that. And then sort of how do we, how do we, um, rebel against that radiantly, like in the title. And in the book, she talks about how the beauty companies are like all of these beauty companies really gear their marketing towards 24 year olds. And we were in conversation about it. And I was like, isn't that interesting that that's when the, the beauty companies and the media and all of these uh, sort of like covert and overt campaigns against aging. So anti-aging rhetoric sort of begins 
when you're, it's geared towards 24 and 25 year olds, if you're looking at like the marketing plans, and that's the same age that we stop getting asked for most of us, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so I think that it's really important for us to recognize that this is a system that we are in. And so many times we are not asked, what do we want to be when we grow up? Because we live in a system that has banked on us feeling like we need to be grown up by 24, you know? And I think that that's uh, doubly true for women. And I think historically, I mean, not even like that, that far off history, like if we're thinking of women in the 50s, in the 60s, women were expected to do anything that they were going to do in their teens or their early 20s. And then they would settle down and have kids and they were, you know, they were the the matriarch of the household. And that is a very valid and very wonderful path if that's the path you've been dreaming about. But I think so many people were made to believe that they need to hit a certain deadline by a certain time because after a certain time, we're not going to have any options anymore. So first of all, just recognizing that that's like a real thing and that's the air we're breathing and that's the history that's come before us is really important. And then I, I like to think of moving forward as not a death of who you were in the past, like, oh, that person no longer exists. I'm no longer a dreamer. I'm no longer an actor, whatever it is. Moving forward isn't the death of who you once were. It is the rebirth of who you are now. And so when I hear, for example, just because you were so beautiful and and honest just a few moments ago, and I know that you are with your community talking about like, you feel like you sort of like dreamed really, really big and used all the dreams. And now you're like, okay, well, what's going on? I guess this isn't for me. Like also life ebbs and flows. So maybe, maybe for you, maybe, and you're, you're 33. So you're still in your early thirties, maybe your early thirties or your thirties in general, whatever, maybe this is the time where it's like, Everything is percolating so that in your late 30s, you're going to be a super dreamer or your 40s. Like, I know that I have had even I'm a a bit older than you. I'm 37. I have 1000 percent had ebbs and flows in my own life where I felt like, well, I'm not ambitious in the way that I used to be ambitious. Therefore, does that mean that I'm not ambitious anymore? And it's like, there's a process of, of relearning the layer of yourself that you're in. So it's not like a rebirth of yourself as you're an entirely new person, but you're sort of, you're coming alive, like you're blossoming year after year. And if you're thinking of a literal flower as it's blossoming, like you're seeing new petals, you're seeing new markings on the leaves, like new stuff is getting uncovered. And so I think being able to get really curious about where you are in your life and not taking it as this is where I am. And so this is where I 
will always be because you have proof that that's not true, right? Because you used to be a different way than you are right now. And before that, you were a different way. So I think that getting curious as to what you're actually experiencing right now and what speaks to that person is the key to being able to ask yourself the questions of, okay, well, what next? Where do I want to go? Like, what do I want to dream about? Maybe I'm so fatigued of dreaming and I need to just chill and like take in life and soak in life right now because we talked about it before. I am that person who needs a lot of brain space. And then once I have that blank space, then it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do all of the things, but I need that space. And so I think honoring who you are in those rhythms of life, it sounds so cheesy and cliche, but it is essential to being able to feel steady and solid in who you are and then asking, okay, how can I, how can I be the meest me I can be in this moment? And sometimes yeah. that's personal. Sometimes it's professional. Like you don't know until you like look closer to figure it out. Yeah, 100%. And I, and I think this speaks to what something you said about the book process that I wrote down. You, you said you need that time for things to, to percolate. And you were like, I just need a minute to stare at the ceiling and trust that, that I can make it to the other side. And, and that I really relate to it. I feel like I've kind of been living in that space maybe a bit too long of just t taking in and percolating. And then when I, I, I have a lot, I want to say and write and whatever, but it feels quite overwhelming, which relates to a piece of advice that I heard our friend Phoebe gave you about the book proposal, which was, you know, you had written one book proposal and gotten the feedback that it was like from an agent, I think that was like, this is 17 books. You mm -hmm. need to distill it, was. it down. It, it's because it was. <laughs> <laughs> and Phoebe, you know, after you told her about a keynote that you were giving, Phoebe was like, that's your book. And hearing that today, I was like, okay, what is my, I'm not, I haven't been asked to give a keynote in a minute, but what would uh, my keynote be? And that needs to be my next thing. Cause I have this project that I've been wanting to work on, went away to work on and have been completely unable to. And I, it feels so overwhelming because there's so I've, I've made it so big. I need to figure out like an outline or a, or I have an outline, but it's so you and I, I think are the same way. Like my outline is 17 things. It's not mm -hmm. one project. And I need to, to kill darlings and, and sort of distill it way, way down. And so when you got that feedback from, from Phoebe to make it your keynote and you took the previous book proposal, do you have any advice for that? Or how did that, how did that feel for you handling that? It felt like such a relief because this was an outline and sort of a framework. It was the framework that I use in the book of you need a self, find yourself, be yourself, stay yourself, want yourself. And that was a framework that I had been using for a really long time in keynotes, workshops, um, even in my own writing and my own work beyond like speaking to people on a stage or with a mic. And I felt like, oh yeah, I have all of the pieces and they're all here. So let's build out from this, this spine. And so I think looking at what you're already doing is really, really valuable. 
especially if you've been doing it for a while uh, or, you know, some iteration of it for a while. And then I would say, especially when it comes to nonfiction writing, I think that with fiction, it's, it's a little bit different. But with nonfiction, if there was one thing that you could say to people and be like, no, 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 you don't understand, fill in the blank here. Mm. What is that fill in the blank? And for me, it was, you don't understand. You're trying to put all of these pretty words over these very real things that you're experiencing in your life. And that's not going to work. And there's research to prove that doing that is, is a tool and can work, but it's one tool. It's not a robust toolkit. So like, you don't understand. It's not about the talk part of self-talk. It's about the self part of self-talk. Mm-hmm. And, and why is that important? Well, that's important because I believe that self-talk is the missing puzzle piece in the equation when we are talking about making very real global and social and cultural changes in our lives. And we're not giving it nearly enough credit for how urgent this is and how this language that we're speaking every single day of our lives, even if we don't realize it, is informing how we shape the world that we live in. So it was like, no, 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 you don't understand this. And it's important because this. Mm. I think that sort of fill in the blank combo can be helpful for people when they're figuring out which of my multiple ideas do I want to go with? And it might end up being that those multiple ideas actually aren't multiple ideas. They're all one idea that you're saying multiple ways, you know? Mm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it's sort of coming up with your thesis or your op-ed and then defending it and seeing if there's even enough there. Because part of me is like, well, maybe there's not, once I really do that, like to your point, am I just saying the same thing in a bunch of different ways? And if that's the case, then are you just like, well, then there's not really a project here? Well, I think there's a few things to say about that. There are many, many successful authors out there who basically wrote books that say the same thing many, many, many different ways. Um, And sometimes that's actually what's needed. And I think that being able to structure your work, like, you know, we talked about my dictionary earlier, like, it's no surprise that I loved English class in high school, like structuring your work, like you are writing an essay about it, and you have a thesis statement, and you have supporting examples, you can sort of figure out, okay, what's a supporting example here? What is a little too similar to this thing? Like, how do I piece together sort of the roadmap? of all this, I think going into it thinking, am I just going to say the same thing a million times? I think that saying, going in either direction of, oh no, I'm I'm not going to, or well, what if I do? So I better not start. I think the middle ground that is way more helpful is to say, okay, well, I might find that I am saying the same thing multiple times. 
And there might be a better way to say this. And that might be one of those multiple things. Mm -hmm. Or I might not. I might not find the same thing multiple times. Like it's it's literally just as much of a chance that you will find many different ways to, to say something and many different supporting examples for something. It's the same chance that you're going to do that as you're going to say one thing in 12 different ways, you know? And so I think it's one of those classic cases of like, you never know until you try. So giving yourself the permission to be like, okay, I'm going to be on the lookout for that. Chances are what I would suspect for people who think that way they're not going to say the same thing multiple times because they're already aware of that's not something that they want to do. But it's like we focus on the things that are the most meaningful to us. And so it makes sense that if it's very meaningful to someone to not say the same thing multiple times, they're going to worry about if they're going to do it or not, you know? Yeah, that's such a good point. And And I agree. It's like so many things are, and I'm constantly reminding myself this, just start. Just put your car into drive, start the GPS. It will reroute you. The project will figure out what it wants to be. The book will figure out how it wants to be, but you can't do that unless you begin. And I think like to your point, what you're worried about can often stop you from, from beginning. Right. I want to talk about your perspective on loneliness and related your perspective on belonging and particularly Brene's Brown's work, which I know has been Mm. extremely meaningful to you. Can you talk about both of those things a bit? Yeah. So Brene Brown is like, if Beyonce is my president, uh, Brene Brown is like high priestess Brene. They, they, they run my world. I am in such deep gratitude for Brene Brown's work. And I am in such awe of her. I think for anybody who's listening and doesn't know who she is, Brene Brown is an author and has written many books and is, you know, a a prolific speaker, but she's a researcher. She is a researcher who researches all about shame and vulnerability. And she's written multiple books about it. I Highly recommend every single one of them. But she talks about the concept of fitting in versus belonging. And what she says is that fitting in is about looking outside of you and trying to mold yourself to be like a certain situation or person. Belonging, however, isn't about changing who you are. It's about being who you are out loud. <laughs> I almost, I'm so sorry to was, the, everyone. No, was, we are on video and I almost fell over. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Please keep going. But Katie held it together like a champ and didn't some, laugh until I, until I did. I'm so sorry. So fitting in is about changing who you are. Belonging is about being who you are. And if you look at that in terms of when we feel the loneliness, the loneliest, when we feel the loneliest, it's usually when we are looking so hard for places we can fit in, or we have been pretending for so long. That's why so many people can say that they can be 
in a room full of people or be in a huge social situation and maybe feel the loneliness that they've ever felt or be, you know, some people say that they feel the loneliest in their marriage. And, you know, that many times like can lead to a separation because they end up feeling so lonely. And that is looking outside of yourself and trying to figure out where you fit. But I also think that there's a really important factor that Brene doesn't talk about, but what I've noticed in my work is that loneliness is just love with nowhere to go. You don't feel lonely in the places and the things that you're apathetic about, right? Usually when loneliness hits, it's because you feel like you have something to give or you want to have a shared experience. It's that love there and there's nowhere for it to go. And that can lead to that fitting in or that pretending. So when, and I felt this multiple times in my life and I talk about in the book that, um, college was actually one of the loneliest times in my life. People talk about the best four years of your life, and that was not true in my case. And I was in an experience where, like a lot of people are when they go off to school, I was in an experience where I felt like I was in unfamiliar territory. I was not in control. I didn't have the sort of safety net or like... um you know, binky of the family and friends and routines that I was so used to and gained so much value from. Um, And I had also been spending so long because I'm a highly sensitive person and highly aware and wanted to fit in, in my surroundings before that I had spent so long pretending and not even knowing that I was pretending. That's what I was doing just to get by. And I got validation from that and I got positive returns. But what happens when you've been basing your existence off of pretending in order to fit into an environment and then your environment completely changes. So then the game is not valid anymore because the habits that you've built in order to get what you think you've wanted they don't apply to this situation because there's new people, there's new rhythms, new surroundings. And all I wanted was to be seen. I wanted to be seen. I wanted to feel connection. I wanted to be able to feel like myself. I also like, I did not go to school for partying and the college experience, so to speak. I was super serious about the work that I wanted to do as an adult and the training that I was getting to do that work. And I didn't find people who I couldn't find people, whether they were there or not, doesn't matter. I couldn't find people who felt the same way that I did or that were letting me into that experience, which is understandable. You're talking about a bunch of 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds. Like these are not conversations that are necessarily happening there. And so I ended up developing a whole host of eating disorders, body-related disorders. And it's not, I mean, you know, we've talked about this, 
eating disorders and body-related disorders, these are mental illnesses. They're so very rarely about what you're eating or about your body. But this is the way that I felt I could gain some sort of control. And that was, I, I call it sort of like pretending over and over is the demise of us all. And my demise came in the form of an eating disorder and multiple eating disorders and caving into myself and making myself smaller and smaller and smaller because I was so protective of this, this self that I had envisioned myself to be. And I felt like everything around me was a threat to that. So it all sort of like caved in on itself. And when I talk about loneliness is love with nowhere to go, it makes sense that the anecdote to that would be like, okay, well then if lonely is love with nowhere to go, then you've got to give your love somewhere to go. And if someone had told that to me when I was 19, 20 years old, I would have been like, screw you. Like you don't, you don't know. That's a pretty phrase. Um, But it's these small moments. We talked about micro moments earlier giving your love somewhere to go is as small. It can be as small as noticing. I don't know the way that a flower smells or seeing something and like taking a mental picture of it in your mind. It can be sending a text to a friend and saying, Hey, I'm thinking of you with zero, um, expectation that anybody's going to respond. It could be going to that thing, like we were talking about before, for five minutes. It's giving your love somewhere to go and not having to go all in with it. Just like letting yourself live out loud a little bit, and then a little bit, and then a little bit, and then a little bit. And that's not easy work. However, I view it along the lines of building a habit. And when you start building a habit, it doesn't feel easy because it's not habitual. How do you make things habitual? You keep doing them. And so I think a lot of people can get stuck in this work of shifting their self-talk or figuring out like, who is this self that I am on the inside? Because it feels really hard and they equate, well, it's hard with, well, I must be doing it wrong or this must not be working. And I think that once we can accept that the challenge is part of the change, that allows us to have a little more grace with ourselves as we take the space we need to go on that journey of belonging, which means belonging to yourself wherever you go, letting your love live out loud wherever you go. So well said. And and I feel like that time in your life too. I, I'm gonna pull up a question from our from our friend while you maybe just mentioned this, but you were a theater kid growing up, mm-hmm. as, as was I. And I feel like that's another defining characteristic of, of both of our personalities. And at that time, you know, that's what you were studying, which I think even amplifies some of those feelings of rejection and being chosen and being seen and body and and commitment and yeah, I, I just, if there's anything you want to say about your your background in theater and how that impacts you. Yeah, I think that not to bring it back to our mutual therapist again, but one of the first things that she said to me in one of our first sessions was, you know, anybody 
who used to do theater never really just used to do theater. They were a theater kid. And so these ideas that we have about what our lives are supposed to look like as a theater kid, they're very specific and they're developed very early on. And I think that that has helped me in my life because it's helped me develop specificity around what success looks like to me. And that's something that's really been helping me out right now because I think there are a lot of external factors that could make or break your vision of success with any goal you go after. Um, But I think because I know how to get specific about it within myself, it's really helped me the way it's hurt me in the past is that if I get too tied to these goals, what can happen is I can think in a very, very binary way of I didn't do this thing. Therefore I must not be good at this. Or like you were saying before, like, well, I'm, I I don't really know what my thing is now. And I used to always know what my thing is like that can feel like a really scary feeling when you are in the routine and have the past history of knowing exactly what you want. And so I think like anything, I think that it's helpful and, and hurtful. And it's about sort of doing the dance between amplifying what is helpful and getting curious as to why things are, are hurtful and, and how those can be addressed in a way that is not just momentary, that really makes real lasting changes. Mm. Also, so good. Okay. I have a question here from our mutual friend. It's a voice text and I have not listened yet. So, Oh my gosh, we'll I'm so excited. Here we go. Ew. Oh wait, hold on. This is about something else. <laughs> but you'll recognize the voice. Name Columbus to do is wrong like that. Um, There's a song we both hate. Waiting in a car right now. And this is Jessica Mernan for everyone listening. Here's her question. My question is, two questions. One, I know that she grew up, as I heard at her cabaret show, which I attended, which, by the way, please mention on the podcast that it was one of the greatest experiences of my entire life, and I actually hate musical theater. It was incredible. Like, I went there because I wanted to support there. I left there a fan of musical theater because of Katie. Probably won't go to any of her things, but she has to know it's a life-changing experience. So my question that I learned at the cabaret, she was a highly sensitive child, which I knew that about her. I knew she was a highly sensitive person, but I didn't really know it impacted her as a child, like down to the kind of clothing that she wore. So my question is, When you're raising a highly sensitive child, whether it is the clothing they wear or being in crowds, like what's something that she wishes her parents would have done for her? Um, I know that she's not a parent, but you can still speak to what you would want to do as a parent or what you wish your parents would have done for you. And let me think of another question. I love hearing the blinker. That... It's well, very I was soothing. wondering what that was. I felt it sounded sort of like the Jeopardy timer. Yeah, it's soothing, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Why don't you do that one and then and then I'll, and then we'll I'll go to spoiler the spoiler alert. One. We have one from Sid, her son. So. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah, she came with Sid to the cabaret, Aww. and it was his first trip to New York. And oh I didn't know that they were coming. And <sighs> I finished, and he came up to me with the book, and he's like, "Will you sign my book?" And I was like, "What are you doing here?" It was. 
I, I just talked to her not yesterday, two days ago. Um, uh, and I told her, I was like, incredible. that was, that was one of the most meaningful things that, that you were there. Oh. And she was like, dude, I don't even like that type of stuff. And I was crying the whole time. Um, oh, that's so cool. yeah. and, and we have to thank her for this entire podcast because I believe she is the reason why I even know you. She connected us. Mm-hmm. Reason why we know each other. Um, and the reason for so many, many other wonderful things in yeah. life period. But I think to answer her question, something that you can do for the kids in your life, or I mean, even the other adults in your life. But I think that as children, I think that we're often looking to the adults in our lives for how to be in the world. And I think that that is something that I really just like sponged up everything from all of the adults around me. And obviously I didn't know that she was asking this question and I've gotten the question before of like, how can we help kids start to do this work about shifting their self-talk? But when it comes to having a highly sensitive child, I think, I think that the awareness of it, is the most important. And I, I promise that's not like a cop-out answer. I think that I don't know if my parents were aware of how deeply sensitive I was. They knew that I was um, like kind of precocious and that I was really good at articulating myself but I think that there were times where when my sensitivity didn't work in favor of another person, I was just told to not be so sensitive. And so I feel like my sensitivity, and this isn't just talking about my parents, but just like people in general, adults, I think that it was primarily celebrated when it served other people. And it's it's sort of like, you know, what's the theme song from Facts of Life? Like you take the good, you take the bad, the blah, 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 the facts of life. Like you have the good of being sensitive. That also like means that there are going to be parts that are harder and that you as the parent or the receiving person might not necessarily like. And the answer isn't to tell the person to not be so sensitive. I think that the awareness that parents can have around their child being highly sensitive and accepting that this is a part of who they are is the number one step. And then I'll go back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, as far as like the language that you are speaking. I think that knowing that this is a highly sensitive kid that, that you're working with here, it's not just about, okay, well, I don't want for example, I don't want my daughter to grow up and develop body image issues. So I'm only going to speak kindly about my body. It's also about like the little things that they are going to pick up on if they're a highly sensitive kid, no matter what you're saying. This is why we can't start with the talk part of self-talk, right? It's about the self part. So I think knowing that your kid is a highly sensitive kid, I think having the types of conversations that are the language you want them to hopefully become fluent in is important. And then also, again, not a cop-out answer. 
actually very important. Like doing this work for yourself is so, so important. And I think that when we're thinking of other people, it's sort of like the proverbial, uh, you know, put your air mask on before you put someone else's on. You have to be able to be the type of person that you would want them to grow up to be. Um, And that's tough. That's really, really tough. And I think that it can be really easy to get into the trap. Again, like like Jessica said, I'm not a, a parent, but I am a very proud auntie and have lots of wonderful children in my life. And it's like, I can get stuck in that trap of just figuring out, okay, what's the best for them? Or how do I want to interact with them? It's like, no, no, no. If they're really sensitive, how am I interacting with me? Because they're going to pick up on that. And I think that that's the thing that um, I, I, I wish that more parents did in general. Yeah. I thought that was an excellent answer. Okay. I let's see so. what else we got. Sorry. I forgot to hit stop. Um, and my second question is, you know, I really feel like Katie has communicated so well how to want ourselves and how to make changes and how to love ourselves more. My question is, what else does Katie want for herself? <gasps> She's so good. Oh, <laughs> um, what does Katie want for herself? Um, well, if you would ask Katie this question yesterday, Katie would have said, Katie wants a fucking break. Um, but I got 12 hours of sleep last night. I voice texted you, Katie, at like eight o'clock. I had been in bed since 7.30. Um, so yeah, I, I got a fucking break, which is awesome. I think that what I want the most from myself is to keep pursuing my most fulfilling life. And I think that that's going to require me to be really honest with myself along the way, because what's fulfilling right now might not be fulfilling in five years. It might not be fulfilling in five days, but I think that so often we chase our best life or greatest life or most successful life. But I think that if we're, and just speaking to myself, because she she asked if I'm able to go after my life and what that means is like my most fulfilling existence, my most fulfilling me that I can be. Um, I suspect that I might get to the end of my life and say that that's the secret to life, but also I'm not there yet. So, so what, what do I know? That's a good question. And I, I, and a good answer both. Um, Okay. And finally, I'm so excited. All right. And we actually have a third question coming in from someone else that attended the cabaret show. His name is Sid. And um, here he is. Um, what inspired you to write your book? Oh, thanks, oh Sid. I, I just, this warms me so much because in my mind, Sid is a baby. I yeah, I know. Believe, like, I, oh my goodness. I, I said to him as a baby. So he's a when baby, I was with him, I was like, I was like, Hey, we've met, but you were like 
too and running around a lawn, but it's really good to see you again. He's like, good to see you again, too. Um, what inspired me to write How this old book? Is he? he is. We'll, we'll I get believe, that information. I believe that he is nine. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh, that makes sense because we've known Jess. Oh my god! God, he's wow. either nine or just turned ten. Because I remember oh getting his um like birth announcement postcard in the mail. Anyway, um, we'll figure that out. Yeah, I I love that he asked this question, and I will say that after having this entire conversation, what inspired me to write this book was it kind of goes off of the answer to the last question. It was like, what is the most natural progression of this work? I didn't write the book because I was like, I just want to write a book. And like, I've, I've had multiple people say to me throughout my, my career, oh, you should write a book. And it never it never really felt right. And I think that what inspired me to write the book was that I felt like there was a real gap in the way that people were talking about the way that we talk to ourselves. And people would talk about these super aspirational things or ideas. And I would consistently be like, okay, cool. But how do we get there? And that's what inspired my work. And once, like we talked about with Phoebe, who also knows Jessica, this is just like a big friend loop on this podcast. Um, when Phoebe was like, this, this keynote, this is your book. What I realized is that initial question that I had asked when I had the idea for want and for doing all of this work of, okay, so how do I get there? How do I live a life where I'm able to say, I love myself. I'm amazing and believe it. Where is the framework and the tips and tools and motivation and inspiration to get there? Um, I think that once I came to the point that I did where I was starting to consider the book, it was when I realized that I had built a solid framework and I had like, I really truly had the answer to my own question. And I think that's something that I've been really, um, mindful to do throughout my career. Like I don't want to, I don't want to speak to something that I don't, if I don't have the answers to something I want to say, I don't know. I don't want to back myself into a corner of saying what I think I need to say in order to appease people. And so I think that what inspired me to write the book was recognizing I have the answer to, or an answer at least to, okay, so how do I get there? And I've got to get this to people. And I feel like the book is the most natural form to do that. Mm. Great question, Sid. Great answer, Katie. Good job, Sid. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for taking all the time that you did. I love you. I could talk to you much longer even, believe it or not. I've got still so many notes. So oh we'll we'll do this again. And we'll do a part two. Thank you. I, I love you. So many years of friendship. Congratulations on the book. And I'm excited for everything that, that comes next for you. And we'll have many, many more conversations in our life. And I'm just, just so grateful that, for this friendship. Is there anything else that, as you know, the name of the show is Let It Out? Is there anything that you wished I would have asked that you want to share, that you want to 
leave people with? Anything that I want to let it out. That I want to let out. Um, I should let people know that anytime I say let it out in life, I go let it out with Katie Dale Bout. Um, I think that's important for people to know. Um, but I think you covered all of the things I, if, if people want to learn more, like beyond just like buying the book, but I'm very accessible on Instagram, on Substack, it's women against negative talk at Substack. Um, I'm on Instagram at Katie Horwich. And I just, I love you so much. And I think that it's one thing, it's really important for people to know that when these conversations happen, and Katie, you're so good at this, but I I don't know if everybody is as genuine as you are when you're like, I have a friend on the podcast and they're a dear friend and we have so much longevity. Like sometimes that's the case. And sometimes you're like, really? Like, do you? I I feel so loved and seen and held by you, whether we talked two days ago or two months ago or two years ago. I think you have been such a wonderful constant in my life. You've been such a cheerleader of mine starting like at those dinners where I was like, I just like, I, I so wish that I was in this really cool author club that you guys are all in and, um, and being such a fierce supporter. And um, I, I just really need everybody to know that like when Katie says it, it's real it's real. Um, you have such a, a gift of bringing great conversations about and bringing together like just really wonderful people. Oh, well, thank you. And likewise, I mean, we didn't even get to talk. You've had a podcast almost as long as I have. You started in 2015, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and I remember, us talking about you, you, you know, and I feel like my book was, which is a whole nother, another conversation, but I feel like that was such a fluke that I felt so I, and I still feel like I'm like, well, I'm not a real, you know, I didn't, it was a fluke, you know, that kind of thing. But right. You are so genuine and, you know, whether it's coming to your spinning class, which I loved doing, or it's, you know, talking about your book, like I'm a fan, I'm a fan of whatever you do. Thanks. And so, so is Jess, so is all of our mutual friends and, and so many people who don't know you personally, but just know you through your work and hopefully more people listening to this, but get yourself a hard copy of her book, connect with her. I just realized there was something I read in one of your sub stacks months ago that I really liked and wanted to bring up on this, but you know. Oh, bring it up fast if you want. I don't remember. People are like, oh my gosh, okay. (laughs) It's not even in my notes. Um, So, you know, you'll come back. But anyway, I adore you and just thank you so much for doing this. So we end, as you know, letting out a deep breath. Yeah. You you ready? Oh, I am so ready. (laughs) Let it out. (sighs) We did it. We did it. (laughs) Thank you so much. so much for listening to this episode with Katie Horwich. She is incredible and you just heard. So like I said at the top, get yourself a hard copy of her book. And like I said, in the middle, if you would like to do creative consulting with me, I have two spots available and I'm happy to make a wait list. I would love to help you to hit the ground running this year. I was thinking we could do some... I'm just thinking this through and maybe next week I'll tell you more, but let me know if you would like me to do 
specific sessions related to a workshop that I have called Remix Your Resolutions, where I help people to do a bit of a postmortem for the current year and to reflect on what worked and what didn't and hit the ground running in the new year focusing on how you want to feel. So I would be happy to offer that one-on-one if that's something that people are interested in doing. It's a lot of journaling exercises. I usually do it in a group, but I could switch it up. So let me know if that's something that anyone is interested in. You can send me an email or send me a message on, actually, let's do this. Let's do the secret code. Why don't you comment the party hat if you would like to do one of those sessions on my latest Instagram post. My Instagram's just my name, at Katie Dalebout. The podcast has an Instagram, let it out with three Ts. And follow Katie Horwich on Instagram. It's her name. Again, I'm just so grateful to my friend for doing the show, to you, my friend I haven't met yet, or maybe I have for listening. And if you need anything, you know where to find me. And I'll be back next week with a new episode. Also, Spiraling, my second show, is in season right now. And if you would like to get my Substack, the newsletter, it's called Let It Out Lists. I haven't been sending them because I've been a bit behind. I also haven't been posting new episodes on the Let It Out Instagram, but you know what? I'm optimistic that they're both going to come back strong <laughs> when I have time. And also it's okay. Perfect timing is always happening. That's what I try to say to myself and I am uh, working on believing it. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is produced by the incredible Brianna Bain and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.